a lot of times the camera would follow people around, just sort of, you know, doom, 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 and it felt purposeless. <laughs> Dodge this. I am the father. I'm here on a mission of mercy. There's only one God, man, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Let's put a smile on that face. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Open the pod bay doors, huh? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the real world. This is episode 116 of the Movie Bite podcast. We're going to talk today about some movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and, of course, more. We're recording on Tuesday, December the 2nd, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today is a man who ostensibly can fly. That's what he's told me anyway. It is Joe Darnell. How are you, Joe? Hi, TJ. Good evening. Glad to be with you. How's it going? Uh, It's going well. How are you? Uh, it couldn't be better. Um, that movie, wow. Uh, not the superhero movie I was uh, looking for. But, but uh, is, is it the one you deserved? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. Wrong franchise. No, wait a minute. Well, which one is this again? I thought this was about Hawkman. Or was this about a Tim Burton movie? I think this or, was about Superman, wasn't it? Or, or uh, It was the, the man of uh, whatever. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about um, superheroes, Michael Keaton's, and more. Yes, there you go. I'll have to. I'll I'll, I'll rewrite the show open just for this episode. And, okay. Yeah. Th- okay. Thank you. You know, I, do I sound any different? Do I sound any better tonight? I'm I'm coming to you live from Podcasting Bay ninety four, which is the little unfinished room in the back bottom corner of my basement. You I actually, don't normally come from here. Yeah, you actually do sound better, at least to my ears. Um, you you don't sound quite as hollow. Um. People may not know this, Joe. Um, I, I'm sure they don't because we sound so professional. I'm sure that they think that we record in studio and in a, in a soundproof studio with proper sound deadening and these sorts of things. Well, we, we don't. I, I actually have like some some uh, cloth um, uh, bed sheets hung on the walls to try to keep the sound from bouncing around so much. And and you, I don't know what you do to deaden the sound, but uh, you do sound better tonight a little bit, maybe. Yeah, actually, I don't do anything to mess with my sound normally. I have a pop filter, and that's it. I'm in my normal office space with a concrete floor, sheetrock walls. Ooh, I have a couple of bookcases that block. Yeah, I know. It is the worst, and that is why I'm in here. What I did is I dragged my my puny little, uh, what is this, Ikea desk, um, 15 feet into this unfinished room. It has a ceiling covered in insulation. The oh, walls perfect. are exposing, uh, yeah, I know, uh, the the two-by-fours. Um, and it's, it's like a, a walk-in closet in size. So uh, I figured it would, it would be more suitable as a recording audio booth what, than usual. Y- yeah, what, what uh, material are the walls? Uh, yeah, just uh, the exposed sheetrock and two-by-fours. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I would, you know, the best place to record Joe is a closet full of clothes that it's, it's almost like a, a recording studio just because this, the, the clothes and the uneven surfaces and it's very sound deadening. I, I have way too much equipment. I can't do that, but, uh, I would love to if I could, but 
can't. Mm. Well, I, I can't do it in my closet for other reasons. The, yeah. Um, yeah, there's just, there's, there's things that are going on in my closet. I don't want to podcast alongside of. Okay. I don't even want to know. <laughs> well, people are probably actually not tuned in for this though. I, I, I love talking about that sort of thing. We don't have a show where we can let that sort of thing mm. out, but on okay, this show, so we're done with the mic gazing. <laughs> exactly. So on this show, uh, we should, this is the star Wars show, isn't it? Isn't that what this show is? That's, that's kind of what it is. I think. Yes, let's talk Star Wars. So we haven't talked about this in ages. Yeah, you 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 were really excited about these things. You want to tell us a little bit about this? Well, yeah. Um, let's see here. In a uh, theater a long time ago, in galaxy places far, far away. Yeah, um, yeah. There was a Force Awakens trailer, TJ, and I think that we may have do, snuck in. Do you a, know of any um, podcasts that talked another about that? discussion? Yeah, I, I want to say it was not too long ago we podcasted about this. We did really tell us. Tell us where can people find that episode at. It is on the internets. If you go to, uh, I think it's uh, um, um, moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast, and you'll find it right there, actually, to, uh, today, which is tomorrow. Uh, you'll find a bonus episode, The Force Awakens teaser trailer, and you can listen to it now on the internet. And uh, that was episode 115 or 114 and a half or whatever it was, it was you want to call it. Yeah. Okay. And we had uh, the, me, you, and Clark talking about it. Yeah, the CMS is not really set up for anything other than uh, auto increment, so it's 115, which is uh, fine. That's just the way it's, we do Okay. You say so. Uh, I, I'm going to think of it as 114 and a half. But this is uh, 116, so how does that work? Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, we, we had a very short list of show links because for a whole, what did you say? It was like 50 minutes? It did turn out to be 50 minutes. I only wanted to spend 30, but it was Star Wars, <laughs> so, and it was three well, of it us. Was, <laughs> it was the first teaser trailer, and really what we were packing in, it was like uh, we were splitting the 50 minutes three ways because we all had like 15 to 20 minutes of thoughts on the new teaser trailer. So it really wasn't that bad. You're just getting three different uh, po- uh, points of view on the one teaser trailer. Yeah, no, it was good. It was it was great. But but so what we're here to talk about though, uh, in in way in the wake of the trailer is the yeah, fan the cuts aftermath. and the alternate trailers. So you you just watched them today. Uh, you oh, were these actually, are great! Yes, <laughs> I love them all. I, I saw the one with the extra George Lucas effects um, the yes. other day. Well, I, I love hilarious. them. I love them all for different reasons. So first of all, we have the George Lucas uh, special edition, which um, of course has the the Lucasfilm logo at the top, which I was complaining about missing. Uh, but then, of course, we're, I'm watching it right now. You can hear it. And there's the uh, the extra scene with, with the uh, animal walking across the screen and, and stormtroopers riding these weird-looking animals on Tatooine. Um, it, it's everything you would expect from, from George Lucas. Um, so, yeah, and it's called the George... I love the kicker with the Millennium Flat Falcon doing the somersault, and it comes into a wave of TIE fighters. <laughs> there's no way that it's not going to hit, like, at least a dozen just, of those TIE fighters. And they're imagine. like... They're, they're breaking the three-dimensional space. Some of them should be under the sand, but they're there, <laughs> and that's exactly what George Lucas would have done. He'd have been like, I want more TIE Fighters. I don't care if it's yes. going to break the, the laws of physics. Put them in there. Did you catch, uh, let's see, at about, I'm pulling it up here. Uh, I'm surprised right, right not one of them was piloted by Jar Jar. At about 25 seconds, did you catch uh, Django Fett? Yes. <laughs> It, it was it was pretty amazing you know it was everything you would expect from a george like uh when uh when oscar isaac is flying around in the x-wing uh there's a shot that comes through his window and <laughs> uh, c-3po and some other droid are flying in front of the x-wings it's pretty incredible 
I charge uh, like a Joe the Hut is just sitting there for no. Oh, but the best is when the X-wing fighter pilot is like shot in the head, but he dodges it. That was what I was just talking about. Was, <laughs> okay, yeah. sorry. I just I'm always paying attention to Jabba. Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah. No, it's it's good. It's too distracting. The point about this is that what makes this a horrible trailer and why we're laughing at it is it's so disorienting to see a George Lucas special edition prequelized movie of any kind. You just can't. It's information overload. You cannot be watching the visual bombardment and thinking about the movie intelligently at the same time. And this reminds me of the experience people had watching the special editions and especially the prequels that most people came away so kind of like confused, disoriented by the movies themselves that they didn't know if they liked them or didn't like them because of the information overload. Well, I think this definitively proves that this trailer is already headed in a much better direction than than George Lucas would have taken it. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I'm I'm a kid again because of what JJ is doing here. The teaser has wound me up. <laughs> I'm playing with yo-yos and lightsabers again. It's this is great. Yeah. So so then we have the second trailer that I posted in this article is the JJ Abrams lens crazy lens flare edition. And this actually <laughs> it's a slightly over the top, but if they were to dial it down, oh I don't know about ten percent, it actually would have been about what I would have expected to see from JJ Abrams, given given the way he treated Star Trek. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm I, overall, I guess I'm pleased that he didn't do this. Like there's, there's light glinting off of just everything, you know, and, and lens flares galore. I mean, it's just crazy. And it, it actually looks about like Star Trek in a lot of places, except for really, except for the very beginning where the, 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 the light is sort of glinting off the sky on Tatooine and everything else looks pretty much like Star Trek. <laughs> So you're, you're right at the beginning when the Tatooine two sons have lens flares on above the top of them, like that really cracked me up yeah. because it wasn't yeah. just the lens flares off of one son. It was, <laughs> it was a double whammy, but everything else is pretty believable, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It, yes, it is. Like that is what JJ did in his Trek films. Awful, and awful. I have to give kudos to whoever is doctoring these, these, you know, teaser clips up because it's, it's spot on Yeah, yeah <laughs> the yeah. quality to which the, amateurs and the independent film uh you know like a f- special effects artists can work these trailers some magic and and repose them this way repurpose them the, the trailers the parodies are are more as entertaining as the real articles now. for sure for sure um we don't have time to talk about our differences on lens flares suffice it to say that i hate them and you love them yeah, that, that we'll have another podcast all about that. Yes, it'll, it'll be called the Lens Flare Edition. <laughs> so the final trailer on this article that I posted um, is probably my favorite, or at least it's the most uh, well done and the one that there's the most to like here. Um, and that is uh, the fan cut uh, for uh, what the fans expectation would have been for the trailer. And it's a much shorter trailer, um, and it really just shows the bits. Like, it, it opens on the, on Tatooine, like you would expect, and the music kind of swells, but then it goes straight to the Millennium Falcon flying through the air, not doing crazy loop-de-loops, just flying. Then the X-Wings, uh, and then the, the, the Millennium Falcon again. You got somebody, you got Daisy Ridley, you've got Stormtroopers, and that's it. So it's, uh, oh, oh, okay. Then it, it goes to the Star Wars logo. Then it cuts to the lightsaber extending without the stupid hilt guard things. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's very the, quick. It's called the, uh, the fan edit and it, I liked it. Like I would have been happy with that trailer too. I'm happy with the current trailer, but. And it looks more like a TV spot just because of the length. It's, it's, yes. you know, what is it about 30 seconds or so? Yes. 
and that's obviously the, a teaser size of the teaser. Um, and I, I, I respect that. It's, it's probably going to be reminiscent of actual TV spots that we actually see in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the first bit of follow-up on Star Wars. We actually have three items of follow-up. By the way, the link uh, for the, all three of these trailers are in one link. Uh, the first link you'll see in the show notes, which are found at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 116. Uh, so make sure to check that out if you want to see these awesome, cool uh, trailers. Cool for various different reasons in cheesy and corny ways, mostly. Uh, speaking of cheesy and corny, uh, Stephen Colbert... Um, he, he took us to school on the red trailers, red lightsaber design, the one that I was just complaining about with the hilt extending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he, he has some, uh, some things to say about that. Let me see if I can get queued up here right to the part where he starts talking about that. I see the red lightsaber. I'm gone too far. Here we go. It's a lightsaber <laughs> with too many lightsabers on it. It's a menage a sabre. Now, sadly, sadly, I think I have a Wookiee in the audience. Sadly, there are some stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herders out there who aren't thrilled with the new Jedi weapon. They say if these things were supposed to protect your hands like sword hilts, it wouldn't work. Because the first time you cross lightsabers and it slid down to the bottom of the blade, your opponent's lightsaber would chop through the little side sabers and take off your hand. Or, as it was stated on Twitter, hilt on lightsaber, stupid and impractical, childhood ruined, everything ruined. <laughs> so I won't spoil it. He has scientific reasons why this is a good design. Uh, he, he's, he's an uber Star Wars nerd, Joe. Oh, he says that this is a good design? Oh, yes. Yes, oh, he does. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I was just beginning to wonder if any of those horns on Darth Maul's skull was actually real or implants. <laughs> because, I mean, at this point, it's like anything could be a very different persuasion, a different point of view. Well, he argues because that there's no good reason for these things, TJ. Like, what are you going to do with him? What practical purpose are they going to serve? Argues that the the whole um, the whole thing is one plasma blade, and once it gets done extending to the top, then it extends out the sides, and so that when the opponent's lightsaber slides down and tries to cut off your hand, it will be caught by the extension of the hilt guard lightsaber thingies. That's his, yeah. and he has scientific reasons. It's, it's pretty funny. It's all, you know, it's all tongue in cheek, but yet, you know, this makes me think back to the empire strikes back. What if when they replaced Luke Skywalker's hand, they just give him an, um, a sixth finger. Why not? <laughs> you know, that, that would have been a brilliant <laughs> idea because if five were just not enough. <laughs> sure if you say so joe mm-hmm. um uh, the i will um yeah in the show notes i will link to the slash film article with the colbert video and below the video is uh, an interesting uh graphic where it has three panels the top panel says first trilogy one blade second trilogy two blades and it shows darth mm-hmm. maul with his dual lightsaber and then third trilogy three blades and it shows of course the one from the trailer where the two things are extending and of course, there's the other things that went around that were easy, you know, easy, low, low hanging fruit, the Swiss Army knife lightsaber and stuff. But I thought this graphic first trilogy one, second trilogy two and third trilogy three, I thought that was pretty fun. So and you have to wonder if there's going to be a practical excuse for them in some kind of dual lightsaber sequence. I, I want to see how they take advantage of this, because if, you know, Yoda has, for instance, a shorter blade. So they have to demonstrate that Yoda has to fight in a different way than most other Jedi for, you know, to actually be an effective, a worthy lightsaber dueling opponent. 
So, you know, he's, he's going to take advantage of the ability to hop around like a rabbit, you know, and he's going to swing this thing all around him. So yes, he creates whatever. a field of his flashy blade, <laughs> you know, okay. At least there is some like rhyme and reason to the fact that Yoda has a kid sized lightsaber, but there isn't a rhyme and reason to this. I don't see the advantage. Like even Darth Maul proved that there was advantages to having two blades until he didn't have the two blades. And then the advantages were moot. Yeah, I, it's all prequel stuff. I don't care. <laughs> there's yeah, no, I'm with you. There's no continuity there. I don't know. Really? You know, speaking of star Wars, I actually saw the, the people versus George Lucas documentary on Netflix the other day. Okay. Have, have you seen it? I haven't. It's good. It's good. And in like, I've read tons of articles about this topic before, but it's, it's worth uh, taking a look at. So is the premise basically of that film that George Lucas hates his fans? No, not at all. It's actually a little bit more balanced than that. It's basically a culmination of all the overall opinions of the varied fans, how we loved him in our childhood when he made the original trilogy and we thought he could do no wrong. Of course. Then we started to wonder and get a little iffy when we saw the Star Wars Christmas special and we we, we started <laughs> yeah. to think, what on earth is wrong with this picture? And then Later on, there were complaints of how he was making too much money off of the memorabilia and he was milking the fans for their addictions. Um, and then they talked about their complaints with all the special, special, special editions and uh, the, naturally. But what it all came back around to was everybody feels like torn up inside that they there are things that they really love about Lucas and then there are things they just cannot stand about Lucas. So they they wish that they could get inside of his head and find a, a good rhyme and reason to some of these things because uh, they feel like, you know, Lucas just tortures them because Lucas makes bad mistakes and he should have handed off the trilogy earlier. You know, it, it's uh, it's a more fair, balanced uh, take on the entire situation. It's not just a rant. Yeah, it does sound good. One more item of follow-up on Star Wars. Jermaine Lassier over at Slash Film uh, has has a scoop on when we will see the next uh, Force Awakens trailer, and he says, and this makes sense because they're all under the Disney umbrella, that the next trailer will be attached to Avengers Age of Ultron in the spring. Um, he says, we've been definitively told that another trailer for Star Wars, The Force, the Force Awakens, will be attached to Avengers Age, Age of Ultron when it opens in the spring. This isn't some huge revelation. In fact, it's pretty darn obvious when you think about it. That film releases on May 1st in the U.S. and it is eight months before the Star Wars opening. It's Disney's second largest film of the year, and the audience crossover is probably massive. Actually, it would probably be bigger news if there wasn't a new trailer on Avengers Age of Ultron, but there will be, and then it'll likely play on Tomorrowland 2 a few weeks later. Uh, it's a little disappointing as a fan that they didn't come out with that trailer for the Age of Ultron release on May the 4th. <laughs> just a few days away star wars day of course I mean, like, can't they just you know delay ultron a few a few days yeah release it on a monday yeah that's just not the way the film industry works joe but all i can say is may the fourth be with you mm. and may it be with you sir all right so that is the star wars follow-up and and this, this is basically turned into the star wars cast i think we're just going <laughs> to rename movie bite podcast to the star wars cast and be done with it um but yeah so that's that's the follow-up uh, there is a couple of other items that I want to talk about before we get to our main review. Um, this might not, be, this might be a Shoot. shorter show. <laughs> uh, so the, the first item on the docket here is that house of cards season three premieres on February the 27th. And the announcement of this was with its usual, uh, house of cards, uh, David Fincher and Kevin Spacey flair, 
uh, where they released just a really short soundless clip of, um, of Kevin Spacey's, um, character and Robin Wright's character walking up, uh, onto the, uh, steps of Air Force One. We're looking at them through the window. He turns and looks at the camera and the date appears on the screen. Uh, I'm psyched. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty pumped. I, I, I am a little concerned because I know that they had planned to do two seasons and I don't know if they had planned to do more than that originally. Um, Although it does feel like it needs another season because you want to see Frank Underwood get his comeuppance. So, mm. um, I don't know. How, have you, have you, you, I think actually I may be spoiling stuff for you because you, you said that you hadn't finished the season two of House no, of Cards. No, 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 no. You can't spoil it for me. Okay. I, I had a good feeling about where they were taking the series. I have not finished season two and I knew they would try to milk it for all it's worth. It's obviously got a lot going for it but, with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Why see, would you cut it off with two seasons? Right. But see, that's the thing. It doesn't feel like they're milking it. They've only released 13 episodes per season. They're doing it very measured. And it's a fantastic drama, and there's a lot of – I feel like they could sustain it over a couple more seasons. They're building it in such a way, ultimately you know that Frank Underwood needs to go down. But it, it's really it, – it's one of those train wrecks that you can't stop watching, and, and, and a lot of times train wrecks you can't stop watching, you mean that in a bad way. I mean this in the best possible way, right? Because Frank Underwood, yeah. you know – and, and – I, I normally – again, it's so weird, and, and maybe I'm being hypocritical. I normally don't like moral ambiguity on this level, but it's like you don't know whether – like you you know you shouldn't be rooting for Frank Underwood, but like at the same time, you're kind of fixated on, well, is he going to get what he's going for? I mean it's very, very interesting. So I, I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited. Well, I mean we all watch movies where the – well, uh, protagonists mainly, but that have very interesting villains as well. And a good chunk of a decent movie can often hold you know 30 minutes or more that all pertain to the villain. And if you were to just trim it all out and pay attention closely to the antagonist's material and you enjoy that material, you're saying that you, you, know, you get a good 30 minutes worth of and, uh, you know, good entertaining antagonism <laughs> in a given movie – and uh, you're willing to watch that, you know, for uh, feature length film after feature length film after feature length film. Sure. So I don't think that this is anything different than that. It's just like we're watching a a series where the protagonist has just been edited out all the time. Uh, I, I suppose, mean, and some people I, would like to think that Underwood is actually a protagonist. See, no, but I would. He's I would not. say. I would say Underwood is the. Uh, how, he's not the voice of reason. It's very weird because he's the primary character. He's the antagonist, but he's also the protagonist. Like there is no no. He's the central character. He cannot call him a, a protagonist. What would make him a protagonist? How does he demonstrate anything that r- comes close to? Uh, I mean, or maybe we are asking ourselves the question: What is a protagonist anymore? The leading character of one, or, or or one of the major characters in a drama, movie, novel, or other fictional text that makes him a protagonist. Joe, eh, you're right. You're right. Okay, he is the protagonist. I guess when I think of protagonist, I think of someone who is pursuing some virtue, because that person is usually trying to demonstrate sure. a fall and redemption cycle. He is striving for something that's morally, in uh, you know, worthy. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of the protagonist as the good guy. That's what we're trained to do, and in general, yes, I think yes. that's a good thing. I don't, and I know I yeah. shouldn't. I shouldn't think that way. It's stereotypical. No, no, I think that we should think that way. Like, I think that the if 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 the majority of your stories are are doing the right thing, telling the story the right way, there's room for stories like House of Cards. But I don't think the majority of your stories should be the antagonist being the protagonist. Well, if you wanted Mister Smith goes to Washington, then you should have watched Mister Smith goes to Washington. 
uh, what is that? You're kidding, right? Nope. Mr. Oh, Smith goes to Washington. You are so young. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm older than you are. I so that's know, 19, but in movie years, you're like 1939, Jimmy Stewart, Gene Arthur, uh, Claude Rains. Yeah, never seen uh, it. Never seen it. Sorry. Frank I, Capra. I, I, uh, I know that I've just given up my movie CJ, card. My, my, you, you my, have. All my credentials are gone. <laughs> they are. Oh, well, moving on. Speaking of movies, TJ, um, there is this awesome mashup this is still, that you wanted to share. This is somewhat Star Wars related, but it's not follow-up. Uh, but it's, yeah, I, uh, because of all the Star Wars news this past weekend, like there hasn't been a lot of else on the site for us to share. And, uh, yeah, and the whole internet is just trying to get all yeah, the Star well, and, Wars stuff out. Yeah, I mean, I was looking for other news that we could talk about, and there's just not a lot. So I thought I'd throw this fun little thing in the show notes. Uh, tell us what this is, Joe. You you actually, I haven't watched it today. I, so. Yeah, I really enjoy this. Uh, you know, you know, hear us out, people. This is uh, not one of those dumb YouTube videos. This is actually pretty well produced. Very high quality. Yeah, uh, you know, Batman in a realistic costume, believable costume, I guess. Very believable. Sorry, not yes. realistic. It actually looks saying? like the Batfleck costume a lot. It, it's got that same texture and stuff. He is presumably on his way to the Death Star to try and rescue Superman, but yes. you never see Superman. Well, that's the what the uh, the dialogue says. And then he yes, you heard that to, right. The Death Star. <laughs> yeah, and he he has to fight with Darth Vader, hand to hand combat, and in a lightsaber duel. This is which is uh, a really really interesting thing. It's very voice cheesy and corny, good. but it's really good. Oh yeah, the, its voice parts are good. The set design is good. The special effects are good. The music is there. I, I mean, like this is over the top, totally. but this is this is definitely uh, where it's at for YouTube. Absolutely. I, I really enjoyed watching this right up until the very end. I won't spoil it for you. I just, I, I, I question that the end was the, the correct end. Uh, but, but up until that point, I really enjoyed it. Uh, despite its cheesy premise, like it just worked for me on so many levels. It's called the superpower beatdown. Like they've done this for others too. I had this, the same, uh, team of video makers. I haven't watched the others, but it, it's pretty awesome. Like they're just, they're just taking and mashing, you know, superheroes and villains together and seeing who like who wins, you know, according to them. So mm. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. My only two criticisms are a, like you said, the ending and B that Darth Vader looked a little bit thin and lanky. I see. I he thought did, he looked wasn't perfect. Filling out the suit. I yeah. thought he looked perfect. Let's see here. Well performed, but he was a bit too lean. Yeah, maybe so. I'll have to look at it again. So, but yeah, I'm just I'm just looking at these graphics now, and they're just amazing. It's amazing what you can do with a laptop sitting at home these days. <laughs> that's no moon. I love that. Batman says that's, that's no moon. Cloaking mode. But yeah, his voice is totally believable. The guy who did, let me let me find Vader's voice. The guy who did Vader's voice. It was not James Earl Jones, but I looked. I because I thought it was. My lord, sensors indicate a breach of security in your armory. He's here for the Kryptonian. Lock down cell blocks three and four, and leave the rest to me. That is the best James Earl Jones impersonation I've heard in a long time. It really, really is. I'm listening to it now, I'm like, maybe not quite enough baritone, but it really did work. Like, I literally questioned myself. I, I've heard a lot of other uh, Darth Vader impersonations, even that were sanctioned by Lucasfilm mm-hmm. for various parodies and TV specials and who knows what. And uh, there was the really well done radio dramas that were pr- uh, produced by Lucas as well. 
And they didn't have James Earl Jones for that. And the impersonator didn't do the best of jobs either. Usually these uh, copycats, they're just not this good. Yeah. You've made a mistake coming here. Release Superman. Why you still can. <laughs> you do not know the power of the dark side. This is pretty epic. Love this next line. I'll take my science over your magic any day. <laughs> so yeah, check that out. That's in the show notes. Uh, you will definitely, I think, want to watch this. If you are anything, I mean, if you want your nerd cred to remain intact, <laughs> you must watch this. So pretty, pretty epic. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now I just have to wonder why didn't Batman ever use his lightsaber any other occasion? Well, he, he, you didn't see the part. Did you not remember the part in the thing where he went and got it? He found one on the Death Star and went and got it. That was oh. what he, this, he said he needed whatever it was. And, and then we saw, he saw him with the lightsaber. Oh, I didn't catch that. Oh, you got to watch it again. You have, it takes multiple viewings to get all the nuances. Um, mm-hmm. So speaking of superheroes and superpowers, see what I did there? Mm. <clears throat> we should talk about Birdman. So... Here we are. This is our review da, 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 da. of Birdman. How did we end up here? This place is horrible. Smells like balls. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your adaptation. That's ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Hold the mask off! You do Birdman 4! Face it, Dad. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. So that was uh, a clip from the trailer for Birdman, released on October the 17th, 2014. It had a budget only of $18 million. Quite an impressive film, in my opinion, for $18 million. Opening weekend brought in $2 million, and the worldwide gross thus far is at $18 million. The critic consensus is that it is a thrilling leap forward for director Alejandro González Iñárritu. Uh, Birdman is an ambitious technical showcase powered by a layered story and outstanding performances from Michael Keaton and Edward Norton. Director, as I mentioned, was Alejandro González Iñárritu. Uh, writer, uh, the same name, I'm not going to say it again, Nicholas uh, Giacobone, Alexander, Alexander Dinolaris, and Armando Bow. It stars Michael Keaton, Edward Norton, Emma Stone, Zach Galifianakis, uh, Naomi Watts, Andrea Riseborough, Amy Ryan, and Lindsay Duncan. Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about this story? Yeah, so in preparation for the storyline bit, I wanted to say a little bit here. I think that the trailer is a little misleading. We'll get into normal trailer talk in a second, but I want to say, first of all, this is what it says of the movie on IMDb. A washed-up actor who once played an iconic superhero must overcome his ego and family trouble as he mounts a Broadway play in a bed to reclaim his past glory. And I felt like that doesn't really capture the movie. It's it's a little misleading. If he had noble intentions, I didn't see them. Uh, they weren't that glorious. Um, so this is a bit more what the movie was like. 
I mean, and I'm just being honest. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just trying to capture my observation of the film. This is a more accurate storyline. Regan Thomas, played by Michael Keaton, is an actor that was once famous for his star roles in superhero flicks in the early 90s. His character was called Birdman, a winged superhero that would remind you of a hybrid between Hawkman and Batman. In the weeks leading up to the beginning of the movie's first act, that is, the present Birdman film, Regan turned down a lead role in a fourth installment of the Birdman movie franchise. Yet quite aware that he's been a washed-up actor for more than a decade, he attempts to reinvent himself as a Broadway playwright, director, and stage actor. Regan's retelling of a classic dramatic play called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love is the last hope for his career. The events leading up to the Saturday night premiere prove to be one disaster after another as a co-star of the play is injured on the set, forcing Regan to hire a replacement, a method actor, who takes the job way too seriously. But Regan has a hard time juggling between the set, his replacement actor, his equally washed-up daughter, and a host of other disasters that prevent a proper staging of the play. Meanwhile, a New York Times critic who Riggin has to woo threatens to shut down production of the play before it even starts with a scathing review of opening night. Yeah, I mean, you, you said that the, the thing that you read first, the official synopsis, like was misleading or something. It really just didn't contain enough information, according to you. I, I actually I think it's misleading because what it what it says to say, I mean, like going back to the original pitch and really what the trailer kind of invokes is this impression that you have a good guy who had a good career, who's trying to do something more important and more thought provoking in the present. And it's just not going well for him because it's too hmm. much of a challenge. I don't get that at all. Uh, from, and from he's trying you... to weigh the things like he's got to take care of his family. He's trying to he's trying to you know take care of his professional career. So so here's 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 what the the original thing that you read says: a washed up actor who once played an iconic superhero must overcome his ego and family troubles as he mounts a Broadway play in a bid to reclaim his past glory. That seems accurate to me. It just doesn't have a lot of info there. But he wasn't really trying to address his ego, and he wasn't. No, really but he has trying to overcome to it. Family. Like he has to overcome it, though. And, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say he was trying to help his family. It doesn't say he was he was trying to over. He doesn't say he was trying to be a better man. It just says he his ego was in the way, and he had to he had to overcome that. So I, I'm just quibbling eh, minorly okay, with you there. Okay, I see your point. Yeah, I I, I just the movie. Um, the trailer uh, led me to think that it would be a different sort of film. Now, here's this is something interesting, Joe. I had never seen a trailer for this film, and so I went into the theater blind. Uh, so, oh, wow. so, so, so um, we weren't even planning on addressing this film at all on the Movie Bite podcast. We should talk about that. Like, uh, we were planning on talking about um, uh, what's that? Uh, what's that film Sherlock is in? Um, the imitation, the game. imitation game. Thank you. I hate when my brain does that, and it does it at some point in every single podcast. My brain just goes kaput on me. <laughs> so um, anyway, so yeah, we were planning on doing that, but come to find out, that movie is in limited release. It isn't exactly this past weekend. It wasn't exactly for theaters, but they were advertising it everywhere. Like, how does that even work? And they showed that the release date is X, you know, whatever the whatever last weekend was, and no, like sure it was the it was there in the fine print for us to see, but I wasn't looking for it, and so I missed it until I went to see it in the theater, and I couldn't find it in the theater 
super frustrating. Yeah, no, it has a really good marketing campaign, but it has a very bad release schedule. Yes. So that was super frustrating. So we finally landed on Birdman. Uh, it was either that or Fury, and I really have no interest in Fury. Uh, Birdman, and I'm, I'm glad we saw Birdman. I I think this is a movie worth talking about. Um, I enjoyed it greatly. Um, and, you know, despite some issues, some some quibbles, that which we'll get into later, I enjoyed okay. watching the film, and um, I'm, I'm glad that we're reviewing it. Well, I always meant to see Birdman. I, I wouldn't have put it off. I definitely wanted to see it, and I'm glad I saw it for the fact that, yes, I definitely intended to see this film. And it, for being mostly a drama, it looked pretty good on the big screen. Absolutely. Well, and, and I'm not, you know, um, I like a good action movie at times, but I also like a good drama like this. So that it was fun to just go and 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 not, you know, sit through an action, an action movie. It, it, you know, there was like literally the only action in this film was in, in, in an ironic scene toward the end. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it was really out of place and it was supposed to be out of place. I'm not faulting it at all. It was just really funny um, to, to put it there. And then it, I loved how the music kind of cut. And you're back in reality. It was pretty fun. So, um, yeah, overall, I would say this film really hit the spot for me in a way that I certainly wasn't expecting. And this is just me being naive, I guess. Have you ever had a film start showing up in your newsfeed? This happens to me occasionally. And and it just turns you off. That's, that's, what, that's why I hadn't watched a trailer for Birdman. Like every single thing – every time I saw it, I just was instantly turned off. Like I don't know why. I can't explain it. It happens sometimes. And here I am. I'm running Movie Byte. I should I should go ahead and power through that, and I just didn't for this. And sometimes I do, and and I'm usually pleasantly surprised. And I just didn't for this film, and that's why I went into it blind. A Fizz would be proud. Like he he. Oh man, that's the perfect movie experience. But um, <laughs> it really was a different experience because I went and going. I have literally no idea what this film is about. Um, and it, it and and that was that was definitely a fun aspect. I I need to do it more often. Probably. Did you know who the cast were? I knew that Michael Keaton was going to be in it, and I did not know that Edward Norton was going to be in it. I think I might have known that Emma Stone was going to be in it. Um, that's really about it. Like, I, I had no other expectations. So, okay. Yes. Um, so, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit while we're talking about who was in it about sure. the performances. And well, yeah, I noticed uh, Michael Keaton. Uh, he had a very aggressive uh, role to play. Um, he is the kind of person that is. The character, excuse me. He's constantly got his mind torn in so many different directions. He yes. doesn't know what to think about, what to concentrate on, but he just tries to uh, summon what he, the part that he has to play at this very given second. And if he's given the opportunity to just like, you know, brush off responsibility and stop to pause and think, he doesn't know what to do with himself. And so the character was well done by Michael Keaton. I was impressed by how clearly he knows how to play a befuddled man yeah well and it's interesting this um this film essentially i, I didn't even put this in my review because it's just now really kind of clarifying this this uh, particular point to me is essentially this film is chronicling uh, a lead up to his psychotic break oh yeah <laughs> like like he's he's this washed up star it, it's interesting how this mirrors michael keaton's own career to some extent <laughs> oh um, dear he he, he he i don't know that he ever had a psychotic break or anything but he like he was this you know superstar batman and he didn't sign on for more batman films he turned it down he turned down more batman films he could have been continued on in this lucrative franchise and he turned it down, and they had to go and find other actors. And like he kind of went into obscurity for a while. Like you didn't hear from him for several years. 
Yeah, and there was some inside jokes even during the film. There totally. was references to George Luke. I mean, George Clooney. And that's funny because George Clooney went on to become one of the next Batman. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think though, was George Clooney first or second? Um, Oh, he was second. He was like third, maybe. Okay. I don't know. He was not the, he was not first. Michael Keaton was the first Tim Burton Batman and he, he did a great job. You're right. You're right. I'm, both I'm, films. I'm, I'm double checking just because not because I don't. And what's interesting too, is that in the, in the Birdman movie, the movies that he played Birdman in supposedly happened around the same time frame in the early nineties. So it, it, Michael, um, Michael is playing a character that is about the exact same age that Michael Keaton is who previously was this big name actor who made movies like Michael Keaton made 20, 30 years ago. Yes. So all of that's the same. Um, for the most part, from what I can tell, otherwise everything else is different. Sure. No, but it was just interesting. Like, it's almost like they, they, I don't know if they tailored some of this to Michael Keaton after they hired him or whether they had him in mind or whether it was a happy coincidence, but it's really fun that they, <laughs> they did this. I, I thought, and, and I thought Michael Keaton had fun with that. I mean, I, I guess, thought it was yeah, pretty apparent. So. It, it, all the characters, well, the actors, I should say, seemed to be really enjoying this movie and wanting to make it work. Yes. Um, they're, they're obviously, they're, I think there are three primary performances. Well, there's two primary performance, performances and one secondary performance that really, really makes the film work in, in a really good way. Obviously, Michael Keaton's performance here is, is fantastic. Like, I've, I've seen very few Michael Keaton films. Um, but certainly here, like this may be the best role I've ever seen him in. It it really, really was a fantastic, uh, uh, like, like he, it's always interesting to me too, to watch these actors play actors on the stage acting in an acting capacity. Like, like that's really hard to get your head around. Like I certainly couldn't do it. So you have to act like you're acting while you're acting. (laughs) It's inception. Uh, he and, and Edward Norton both pull that off so well. Um, and, and, and Edward Norton is, as always, fantastic. Like, I, I don't know, even though I've seen some films that I didn't like that he was in, I always enjoy him as, you know, you know what I'm saying. So he, yeah, and, honestly, and, I'm usually okay with Edward Norton. This was the first time I genuinely enjoyed him. Yeah, he is the, the best scoundrel you have, the most fantastic scoundrel you have ever seen in your life. <laughs> um, you, you hated him most of this film as you should. And, and yeah, it was wonderful. The performance was there. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. you hate him because this is, he were supposed to hate him. I'm not saying it as a bad thing. Um, he's, he, he's arrogant and boorish and, and, you know he's he, okay he's well the, here's what the, you're saying tj we have established that uh, riggan thompson is not a very admirable protagonist no nope. mike shiner who is the uh actor replacement in the play even less it, admirable is less admirable <laughs> so then there is Emmett stone pl- uh, playing sam thompson Riggin's daughter fantastic performance but again another washed up loser type no no and, nobody in this film was admirable not yes, at all. I mean, it, even Zach Galifianakis, who plays no. like the producer <laughs> slash friend slash uh, attorney, he, he he just lies. He lies to get through every waking moment to do his job effectively, so that the whole thing doesn't fall apart my, and they entirely lose their production. My favorite uh, Zach Galifianakis line was when he says, "You know, Martin Scorsese," and he didn't say Scorsese. He said Scorsese. He said Martin Scorsese is going to be out there. He's like, really. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's looking for you know fill these roles and and that's how he got Riggin because Riggin at that point was ready to quit and that's how he got Riggin out on the stage. He's managing Riggin 
And and it was, you know, they're walking down the hall. Is, is he really going to be out there? And he says, oh, yeah. And, and I've got some, what was it, some tickets to the moon or so, something so crazy like that. And that's when you know, like, he's completely made it up. Uh, it yeah. was fantastic. It was fantastic. I, and it was the actress who says something like, Scorsese? You know, I appreciated that the moment after, uh, you know, uh, Reagan walks out down the hallway when she questions the attorney, she says Scorsese. He says Scorsese. Yeah. She yeah. says Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. He really didn't have any, it should have been a clue to Reagan. He really didn't have any idea what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I just, I really enjoyed this movie, Joe. And I, and I have to say, um, I have seen Emma Stone in very few things. But she's always been fantastic, and I think that she was even more fantastic than any previous role I've seen her in here. And I wish she had uh, like played a larger part. As it is, she's like ten percent of the movie, but really good. Like she had a really wonderful monologue uh, with uh, with Riggin uh, when she, he catches her with weed. Um, just okay. oh man, fantastic. Yeah, there were some well-constructed scenes. I have to admit the writing in the movie was pretty good. One of the things that I liked was the cinematography because there was a lot of uh, free camera movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed like the camera was following you around the hallways of the back of the stage and into the dressing rooms and out into the streets and down the hallways into other buildings and bars and all along the staircases and all all the time, no shaky cam. And I know we talk about no, shaky cam probably a bit too much. Like this is really kind of weird, but uh, you know, when you have so much free roaming camera work done by the cinematographer in a movie like this, you expect the shaky cam to show up. You do. Yeah. And, and it didn't like, it could very well have happened because so much of the comedy is like the television show, the office where a lot of ornery people are making lots of mistakes on their job. And to add to the chaos, why not a little bit of shaky cam? Well, it's it's that is a shoe in for a lot of these kinds of films. It's the difference in perspective. Like, is the camera omniscient or is it a character on the set? And and here it is very much omniscient. Like, it is showing you a view. It is we are not a character with the camera. We are a a, a portal into the world. That's it. Um, That's it exactly. That is exactly the difference. Uh, Emmanuel Lubezki is the um, cinematographer for this film, and and he is, as I understand it, legendary for his steady cam work. So I doubt if there was any actual handheld in this movie. It did ver- feel very much like good steady cam work. Uh, and it, I know it's rare for us to really focus on the cinematography this way, but it's a very important part of this film. Joe, there are literally only I think, if I remember right, two cuts, two visible cuts in this film, like. Yeah. For the most it was part, a bit like uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Rope in that way, because yes. if there were more cuts, then they were done when the lights got really dim and they were turning the corner into a doorway that it, you couldn't exactly see because it got so dark. And then maybe that was the opportune moment they made a cut. But yeah, for the most part, it was difficult to understand the flow of time, but sort of in a good way that yes. helped you, forced you to try and pay closer attention to the story's progression because most of these things were happening one night after the next. Well, this is this is um, digital technology used at its finest because they didn't have to work as hard for the single takes as, as, say, Alfred Hitchcock did with Rope. Because they have the technology now, we have the technology to digitally stitch this thing together. So there was obviously they had had to go change and do makeup and different things and they're later in the day or the next day. But it was one camera flow, and they did things like, you know, they made it understandable that time had progressed, even though the camera had never cut. It was really a fantastic um, way to keep a slow-moving film feel like it was moving. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it it really worked well. 
there, the, the, the two cuts that I, I recall, um, there's, there's one near the beginning of the film. Uh, well, it's really when the film opens. Uh, and, and then as far as I know, as far as I can remember, there was never a cut again until I won't give away what the big thing was that happened toward the end, but there was a big thing that happened and there was a cut. Um, and it was very deliberate in that way. Yeah. And this, yeah. this camera work, this cinematography, uh, I do have some complaints with it, but in by by and large, I I was really blown away with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I have seen a few other movies that were about um, stage performances, and all of them seem to just be rather intriguing to me. I like the idea of seeing behind the curtain throughout the performance of a movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, kind of as much as you are attracted to actors playing actors that are acting in a movie. <laughs> I'm interested in just seeing the, the set, the props, the, the director backstage. Oh the, yeah. The, well, camera, that was, the lighting crew and yeah, whatever was the very, heck they're yeah. doing in real time with a performance as it flows in the movie. Mm-hmm, yeah. And because the, you got to see several scenes unfold where, yeah, you saw this scene performed earlier when they were rehearsing, and now you're seeing what's happening on the preview night, and things are going on behind the curtain that are not so good. Uh, it's interesting how you see the story within the story. And, the, and yes, I like the many layers that are unfolding just on the location, in the set design in the theater room. And when you walk out onto the stage with the actors playing their parts and they're in front of a live audience and you see the entire theater patched with uh, audience members, it, it almost gives you a little bit of like, um, uh, uh, shy, <laughs> I don't want to say I felt shy, but I got a little um, wary of the presence of all those eyes looking at us in the theater. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. That so sense? it really transported you to that space. It, it really, yes, it really transported me to the space because there is a huge live audience that is looking at us, the audience watching this movie. <laughs> I thought that was pretty intense. Yeah, that is interesting. I never got that sense, but I can see how you did. Um, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, there, the my, my I think one of my favorite things on the stage was when he first brings in Mike Shiner, and this is where when he still kind of got um, a honeymoon status type thing. Like he's just hired this great. Uh, wonderful method actor, and he comes in, and you can tell right off. We can tell he's a complete jerk. But like he, but he's hashing out, and he's he has you know he's like, just, just let's just let's just lay down the scene, you know, let's just hash this out, you know. And, and what if you did this? And what if I, you know, and, and, and no, this this would be much more. Ri- and it was it was a wonderful scene like that. That's it was probably, yeah. it was really well performed. Yes, and and that's what I'm talking about. When Edward I talk Norton about, made that scene. Oh, totally. And you can tell, like we can tell, because we're we're kind of outside of everything. You know, at the same time that you can understand Riggins' uh, enamoredness with this guy, you can go, "This is not going to work out very well." And it, you know, it doesn't. Like Edward Norton is a complete and total jerk. Mm-hmm, um. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was uh really fantastic to watch that. Well, um. Yeah, we've kind of packed in there a lot of observa- general observations and likes. Um, what did you think about the whole subplot of Birdman kind of talking to Riggin throughout the film? So it's not explicitly told to us what this means, uh, which is good. Um, I wouldn't want it spelled out. And you can kind of make your own interpretation of what's going on. And here's here's how I feel about it. That obviously we never see any of this stuff happening, like, like Riggin – uh, you know, when he's alone, he can he has this telekinesis power that obviously is some sort of thing that has to do with Birdman. And Birdman will talk to him when he's alone and doing this telekinesis thing, right? 
but it's only ever when he's alone. We never, well, except for one time at the end of the film, we never see anybody else in that space with him. And so my interpretation would be that this is his he this is leading up to his psychotic break where he's just completely losing it. Um and and like this Birdman character that he used to be is tormenting him. He was not artistically feel, fulfilled by it and yet it was the only way that he could be successful. Um and this is a this is a common theme among actors they don't want to be pigeonholed, you know. I remember uh, all this controversy with Leonard Nimoy and Spock, for instance, like he became pigeonholed as the guy could only play this emotionless Vulcan. He was not as versatile actor or whatever. And that, that haunted him for years. And the same goes for the people who play these superhero characters. Sometimes they get pigeonholed like this. Like, tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I say Christopher Reeve. I was about to say Christopher Reeve. Uh, Superman is the first thing that comes to mind when I say Christopher Reeve to anybody. Like he got stuck. But when, I'm sorry to clarify when you, while you were b- just beginning to ask me that question, I, Christopher Reeve popped in my head. But what I saw was this guy wearing the Superman suit. Exactly. That's what when I when I hear and it, that's true of anybody. If you ask with anybody, black hair. if you ask anybody, you see the guy with the 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 cape and the boots and the little curl going down, you know, and on his forehead. That's who you see when you see Christopher Reeve. And so the same thing happened to this man, and it's caused it's caused him to become mentally unstable. That would be my interpretation of all that. Does it answer your question? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I thought for the sake of the film, it was well done. At the same time, a little bit confusing. Sure, Boring, sure. To be sure, because you're getting into a guy's uh, neurotic breakdown, and he doesn't talk back to Birdman. He it, it seems to be fabricating some things that Birdman says. He responds to what Birdman says, but then also Birdman seems to come up with some things on his own. And that's the neuroses playing out. It definitely was theatrical, uh, dramatic. It um, if Michael Keaton hadn't performed this, I would have assumed Russell Crowe would have done it. <laughs> I don't know and, why, but uh, just because he seems very neurotic at times. Um, <laughs> okay. And it was, it was entertaining to be sure, but I was also left kind of wanting um, I, because when they have that big moment that Birdman is looming over Riggins shoulder, walking down the streets of New York and he is uh, verbally attacking his, you know, his perspective on the play and what he should have done with his career. And then he starts to bring like all special effects break loose in the city, uh, the you know, streets. And there's a, a robotic dragon that like starts ripping to shreds the building yeah. to stress the point to Riggin that this is what the audience wants, <laughs> but we're seeing it through Riggin's eyes as Birdman is like basically tormenting him yes. in his imagination. And I I thought it's all very clever, well and good, but at the same time, as interesting as it is, it felt like it, it needed something else to complete the picture. Something is missing in this film. I guess I I actually thought that worked really well. Like I was reserving judgment on what all this telekinesis and Birdman stuff was about until this point in the film where he's soaring through the air as Birdman and he's got Birdman looming over his shoulder and he's seeing the streets of New York blow up and he's flying over New York. And then all of a sudden the music cuts like hard cut, like the swelling orchestral music and there's a hard cut. And there is a, I think this is the only other cut in the film that I remember there is a cut to him getting out of a cab and going in. And I'm like, oh, okay. This all this is kind of what I was thinking, but this all makes sense. This is all happening in his head. Yeah, well, there was a little bit of uh, what is it? Not Mister Nice in mysticism, um, or uh, 
Buddhism or Hinduism. I'm, I'm getting them all kind of mixed up. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. a little bit of that with the telekinesis and he meditates at the beginning of the film and you see a statuette in his dressing room. Sure, that's- And so it seemed like some of it was a little bit of that religious aspect and it's unclear how much of that is supposed to be a, a part of what's happening here because it doesn't it doesn't spell out anything no it, it just implies that some of this is religious and some of this is just uh, a free-for-all of this man's emotions i didn't get any of the religious stuff i i never I, I guess i didn't see the statue that you're talking about and i didn't get that this is ever religious i always thought it was happening in his head so well i mean most most people like that are not entirely consistent with their religiosity especially americans sure that adopt those you know religious practices so yeah i, I was surprisingly at, at first when the film opens and he's basically levitating off the floor i thought what is going on here but as it played out i thought you know this this actually works really well to show what's going on inside this guy's head it's interesting because you get the impression he wasn't actually levitating anything but when he was alone and seeing it from his point of view, he was able to levitate all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. And you wondered like, hmm, that's interesting. Well, uh, what did you make of that? Did you think that that was just part of his psychotic breakdown? Yes. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Okay, I'll buy that. I, I had wondered if like they were trying to make the point that he was just trying to be creative and he was, you know, creative in all the wrong ways and it was unhelpful to his career. Um, or if he was actually, did he have a superpower? I mean, because at the very end of the film, they do something uh, quite uh, unexpected. Uh, let's, let's get to that. Let's come to that. We'll get to okay. that. Okay. Well, wait a minute. It's, spoil- it's, get very, to our- it's very spoilery, but we're going to get to the things that we don't like. And that's, that's a big one for me. Okay. Okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, let's go back do you want to take it from the top of all the dislikes yeah i really don't have a lot here yeah. okay um, and uh, I, there, I there's a few totally there's a understand. few yeah, the film does juggle a few themes that it doesn't land um there's there's an episode where the woman that's that and, and she's acting in the play with uh mike shiner i don't remember her name right off the top of my head but she's she's basically sleeping with him and then she breaks up with him and she uh has this makeout session with a, another woman and then that's the end of that. Like, I, I don't know, like, why that was there. I, I don't quite understand. Like, I feel like that was a theme that meant to get picked up later when the script was being written and it never got erased, that part, because they never picked up the thread and they just never went back and fixed that. Like, I don't know. That's a little bit weird. I don't know. Um, I felt like there were several disjointed things about this film intentionally. So because even though Riggin is the main character, they wanted to give the other side characters their due to screen time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like um, you have rather interesting characters. You have very interesting actors performing them and there's no way you're going to have enough time to give them their, their just time on screen. True. So it seemed like everything was incomplete for all the, the side characters. Um, and even though they had very decent screen time, they got to do very interesting things. None of them were given the, the story as much attention as they deserved. I, I felt like, uh, oh, well, I mean, you know, you're, you're okay. That's definitely a problem for you. Can I, can I just say one great big one for me? Yeah, go ahead. As a whole, this film just didn't grab me. Really? Um, really? See, yeah. it, it, it totally grabbed me, but yeah. See, like I, I expected it to the, the trailer hooked me and I liked the premise. I liked the cast and I liked the setting. I just didn't f- enjoy this story the the feel of the drama was too much a dark comedy for my taste Mm. 
and it was definitely so a dark comedy. What, what I got was just a bunch of hoodlums pursuing vainglory and being way too emotional about the things that they couldn't have. And then kind of silly about the things they couldn't have, because it's like, they're aware of the things that they shouldn't have and they should have, but then they want those things that they cannot obtain anyway. And they were all over the place emotionally. It was just, you're like watching a lot of humans that are living examples of train wrecks. I thought that was and, the point though of the film. I know, but so why is that entertaining? Why is that a great thing to observe? What is the end? What is the point at the end of it all? Especially the point at the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I found it um, almost like, if almost you like a watching cautionary a movie, tale. Sure. If you're watching a war movie, you expect there to be violence and a lot of battles that feel like they're unfulfilling that are uh, not meeting, you know, either side's expectations for the outcomes of the war. But sometimes the, the war movies get too down trodden with, you know, the facts of life and the brutality of war and they turn cynical. They get way too depressing. They get, uh, they, they just get so self-consuming and that's what this did which with a bunch of actors playing out a performance in downtown Manhattan. Um, I mean, I thought the point was kind of to show like the vanity and the uh, vainness of the, of, of all of it really. Sure. Okay. It, mission accomplished, <laughs> but why do we, why do we like this? Why, why, why are we entertained by it? Well, it, it's, it's more along the lines of, we know kind of in our back of our heads, this is the way Hollywood and Broadway are. Um, and so it's not something that I necessarily want to come back to later, but it's something that I think is good for a viewing, you know, it, okay. it's that maybe, I guess that's my perspective on it. Okay. Cause uh, yeah, I, I didn't know exactly where you would stand in terms of your star rating. If you were saying it was film worth revisiting or not. So, so to me, it's uh, like, like I give Schindler's list a four and a half star rating. I believe I've said, I don't know if I've ever actually reviewed it, but it's not a film that I ever want to see again. It's a film everybody should see, but it's not a film. That, so, so my star rating is not indicative of necessarily of, of how much I want to watch the film or whether I want to come back to it. I, I may come back to this film at some point in the future, uh, but it's not something I will put on my list to watch over and over like say the matrix or star Trek two or, or the Incredibles or uh, any other film like that, that I would also rate highly. But just because I have a high star rating of something doesn't mean that I think that I'm going to watch it every year or something. Yeah. Okay. I Does understand. that make sense? Yeah, Definitely. There are definitely the films that are so well made that are definitely worth seeing at least once, a solid viewing. And uh, uh, whether it's for cultural awareness or a, um, you know, it's something deeper than that, even. And you're saying Birdman would be kind of in that category. Sure. I, I think that it's, um, it's very, um, it's a very well, well made film. In a I, sense, it's true to life about these people in this particular lifestyle. Yes, absolutely. I, I think so. Um, yeah. So let's see one of, one of the other dislikes that I, I had, I mentioned earlier that, uh, I loved the cinematography with some caveats. And this is where I would say that I felt, I feel like sometimes the cinematography seemed to lack purpose. It was a little lackadaisical. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of times the camera would follow people around just sort of, you know, doo, 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 and it felt purposeless. <laughs> and, and the, in general, the technique of following somebody with a camera is not a great technique. Like it was, in my opinion, 
the, of all the films I've seen, and granted I've probably only seen a, a very small subset of all the films available in this world, uh, because this, there's nobody in the world that can watch every film that's ever been made. I just don't think that's possible. But of all the films I've ever seen, it has only this, – this technique of following somebody has only ever been done well once, and that was by Martin Scorsese in Goodfellas. You probably remember the scene I'm talking about in Goodfellas uh, if you've seen the film. Oh, yeah. So this is the scene where Henry Hill uh, is basically on top of his game. It's about in the middle of the film somewhere, and he's just gotten in good with the gang or with you know with the mob. And he is taking his girlfriend to this club, and he's coming in the back way. And the camera's just following around and whipping around with him. And he's, hey, how's it going, Joey? And he throws in a thing to the – you know, and he's like on top of his game. It was really well done, and Martin Scorsese just did it that once. This film does it. 20, 30 times just following people through the hallways, meandering around. And this is the, the this is the weakest part of the cinematography. As glorious as some of the cinematography is, following people around through the halls is not it just doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> so I guess so. I, I one of the things that came to my mind when they were doing this throughout the film was that it brought to mind how we compartmentalize our role from place to place that we are in the characters seem to behave differently just based on their environment and it's like you know what that's actually what we do in real life as human beings oh, sure the moment he steps out in the public place with or without his clothes on he is going to act <laughs> in one particular way versus the way that he is on stage with or without his his costume on and uh and you got to see that transformation as he was going for, you know from walkway through doorways and the like up stairways and you're right it was a little um it's not the most engaging way to portray the moment no i'll, I'll give you that i okay go uh, <laughs> there is the one problem i have that as a whole i just i understand what they were trying to accomplish with this film it, it it's it, it's definitely a well done film i just wasn't entertained much all by it then there's the ending <laughs> Can I talk about the ending? No, please? not yet. Let's let's save that for the very last because I I feel like this is going to be a good discussion and it's very spoilery. But but actually, what I'm about to talk about is spoilery too. So there are two things that I want to talk about, and okay. I this is going to be more like, uh, and then the ending can be more up for grabs. But okay, um, absolutely. TJ. But this is something I wanted Sort's to wait. Uh, there's something I wanted to wait until the end. So we're going to call spoilers. This is a spoiler warning. I want to talk about this film's uh, critique of critic culture. Um, this, this film very much toward the end really, really, I think has a great critique of the, of the critic culture. And I, 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 f I have us, you know, I've had these feelings about critics before, like their critics ha sometimes feels like they, they rise up with an agenda. Um, and this, this woman, that's the, the theater critic, Tabitha, um, and she tells, she tells Riggin, again, I've already called spoilers, <laughs> here we go, she tells Riggin that she's going to destroy his play, even though she's never seen it. Like, this is, this is what re really his psychotic break just happens, is, is she says, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how good it is, I'm going to destroy you, and you want to know why? It's because she's basically upset that, that he is taking up space in a theater that could be otherwise used for other more more traditional plays or more traditional actors and he's just taking up space and so finer arts right she's going to destroy him because she's she's a snob she's a complete snob um and she's soulless people that work really hard for their soulless arts right he is basically thrown away he's poured everything of himself into this like he lives or dies with this and this critic tells him you know what doesn't matter i'm going to destroy you and that's when he has a psychotic break 
So um, I really liked this, and, and and tying in with the ending, like she gave him a rave review, and it was because he spilled again. We're in spoilers. He spilled real blood, and this is exactly what the stage needed, both metaphorically and in reality. So it's almost like, a, even though she gave him a rave review, it's almost like a uh, you know a, a slap in the <laughs> face, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I really enjoyed that. Like like, and the film doesn't lead you to any conclusions, but but to me, it's it's pretty obvious that like this is not a good thing about critic culture. So I I uh, I thought that was. Uh, worth seeing the film for in and of itself. I agree. It was, it was interesting the angle they put on it in all, all the films I've seen that portray critics. They are some sort of antagonist. It brings to mind Ratatouille and the food critic. Yes. Although he turned and, out to there be are plenty of other examples. Yeah. He turned out not to be an antagonist in the end, but he started out as one. Well, it's in sort of a similar light. This woman gives the rave review, so she must not would, have turned out to be a bad one. Mm, I would say she always she maintained as an antagonist. Even so, like like you should not give this this oh, yeah? the, this, this thing a good review because he shot himself in the face. Like that <laughs> that's crazy. But this is a but, but but this is a chicken and egg problem too. Because in the in the scene in the bar where he's talking with Tabitha, uh, like he's not a good guy either. Um, you know, she's out of line. So is he, he's completely out of line. They're both really out of line. It's a chicken and egg problem. Which, which is the cause of which is, is he out of line because she's out of line? Is she out of line because he's out of line? Like it it doesn't matter. Does, you know, stop being a snob. Uh, so yeah, that, that was my takeaway from that. That was, that was it. Yeah, I, I understand. You know, she's a, a difficult, cantankerous, you know, professional, politically minded, you know, person that just has to have her, her stubborn way. And she feels underappreciated, just like all the actors in this film, you know, they all have to have it their way. They all feel like they should be appreciated and everybody should respect them because they all deserve something special. And you even got that perspective from this woman. Like she's every night there is some actor, you know, trying to buy her a drink in the bar so that they can buy a good review. And she wants to fluff them off. She wants to have respect. She doesn't want to be bought. And it's interesting, like there's that, there's that same kind of problem, chicken and egg problem for the actors. They want the public to love them. They want the public to give them their money. They don't, they also don't want to do it for things that they, they think are insincere or disingenuous. Such as Birdman. Such as Birdman. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's interesting how there's a, some metaphors within metaphors. Yeah. I, um, I was, yeah, I was okay with their part. Joe, you can talk about the end now. Oh, thank you, TJ. I I actually enjoyed the end, except for the very, very end. I was uh, I was just kind of wondering what they were doing uh, near the end of the second act. From the near the end of the second act to the end of the film, they did a lot of interesting things, but that was especially when they lost me. Um, interesting, the, because okay, uh, the method actor complains really vocally how Riggin is not using a real looking gun. Mm-hmm in the stage performance. Well, I have to tell you, Joe, I knew that he was going to do the shoot shooting himself thing when he came out of the bar. Like I, when, when he got done with that argument with the critic and I put it, I put it together. Like, you know what? He, he's been, she, you know, the, the, they've been complaining. The method actor has been complaining about it, not being real enough. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to show her, I'm going to give her real. I'll show her what real is. And you know, there's no hope for me anyway. She's going to give me a bad review. So I might as well off myself. Right. 
And, and sure. that, that is, um, to me, that's where it was going. And I thought, oh, so I've already predicted this. It'll be interesting to see if it's going where I predicted. And it's like, yep, suspicion confirmed. Wait, what? He's waking up in the hospital? That's surprising. So, so then you have to decide, well, did he really mean to kill himself and failed and, and actually only just shot his nose off? Like, or did he mean to shoot his nose off so that he could survive and see whether it, you know, was, worked or not? Like, I don't know. And, and I, the film was unclear. And and I actually I, – I was prepared to not enjoy it because I predicted it so, because it was so predictable until he woke up in the hospital. And I'm like, wow, this is this is a different twist that I wasn't expecting. Okay, so you were up uh, – you were okay with it. You were on board until that moment that he was alive. I mean that you <laughs> you saw that he was alive, but it was – your problem was with what he did when he got up out of the hospital bed. Right. My Well, there's, there's a couple of ways you can interpret that. Is that what you want to talk about now or do you have anything else to say before that? Well, I mean, just again, as a whole, like he shot himself on the stage and uh, there's lots and lots of applause, which is ironic that everybody's applauding. Now he just shot himself in the face. Well, they obviously didn't know that he had actually shot himself yet because we saw, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the blood rig and stuff when they were practicing, like he had shot himself and, and fallen down on the stage when, in, in the previews. Mm. So, and then <laughs> they freak out when he, they figure out he is actually physically hurt. Well, we don't know. Well, because yeah. because it all faded to black. Because well, we're the, in- you see like one or two of the people down at the front of the audience that kind of figured it out. They they, they stopped applauding and they started to freak out before the curtain closed. Huh, I didn't see that. Yeah. I, I mean, I noticed that the critic had marched straight out and I thought, oh, she's going to write her a bad review. And obviously she didn't. <laughs> well, at that time, she probably didn't realize that he had shot himself. Maybe so. Um. She was in a hurry to get out of there because she couldn't stand the film or stand the play just because she was bound and determined to be that way. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, flash back to the scene in the hospital. Riggin is obviously already shown to be psychotic before this point. Completely. And then he has shot himself and you don't know if he was trying to kill himself or if he was just trying to take advantage of a last ditch effort to draw attention to his production. It's hard to say. It really is. And, and I don't and know that the film there, even wants you to make a conclusion about that. Yeah. There's one friend in the movie that thanks him for it and praises him for it because it means good things for their production. Zach Galifianakis. And, this, and then there are other people that are worried because this obviously means horrible things if it's true. And then uh, Riggin gets up from his hospital bed while no one's looking. And he looks around and he goes to the window and he gets up on the windowsill and he jumps. And you're Presum- wondering, presumably he does. Yeah, presumably you don't actually see him jump. No, that's true. No, the way the camera pans, he's standing on the ledge and then the camera pans back into the hospital room to show his daughter walk back into the room. She looks around for her father worried he doesn't answer, and she quickly dashes to the window, looks around, looks down. He's not there. Apparently, we don't actually see. She doesn't say one way or the other. She looks up, and then she looks higher, and she smiles, elated to see something up in the sky. Uh, uh, ostensibly. That's very, <laughs> it's very open to interpretation. I can tell you a couple of things that I've heard. I, I have no conclusion on this because I actually don't like the ending, this, this very, very end. Um, I would have been fine with it just ending with him in the hospital in some way. Um, but, but, um, so, so some of the interpretations that I've heard are, um, a, this could be like the daughter finally seeing him the same way he sees himself. Um, or B, it could be that this is him imagining how he sees, how she sees him after he's jumped. Like he could be laying splat on the, on the floor 
on the on the ground below but she he it could be his vision for what, how she would see it. oh he's flying you know he's out you know maybe that's what his you know and then the other interpretation is that simply that he uh, you know is walking out on the roof or something and she didn't know where he is and she saw him on the roof so I feel the- silly even describing these things because we're, we're depending on <laughs> them like they're important. But when it comes right down to it, it's it's very subjective, and I think you can get out of it what you want. It's it's like the spinny top at the end of yes, Inception. Yes, and I hate the spinny top at the end of Inception, too. I hate resolutions like this that are non-resolutions. Yeah. Um, I guess I just don't like any interpretation of it, period. I don't like the idea that he's actually flying. I don't like the idea that he's actually off himself. I don't like the idea that he mistakenly slips off the edge and he died accidentally. No, no none it's, of it works for me. No, it, it's it's comical for sure. But then what the heck is with his goddard's doofy, goofy smile? Well, um, as, as I heard one other person say on a podcast talking about this film, you know, it's surprising. I didn't like the ending, but it's surprising how much it really didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. And, and that's, exactly. and that's, and that's kind of how I feel. Like, you know what? That didn't, it, the ending was sort of like a, eh, yeah, I just pretended the movie ended five, you know, five seconds ago. And what's interesting too is that part of the story is how, they're all trying to find a great way to market this this production so that they can garner a lots of attention that it would uh definitely amp up the attention for their acting careers they want the public prestige and so they frequently bring up how whether or not what they're doing is very viral and how they can go viral what does twitter have to say what are the people doing on the internet and what how many views on facebook they bring these things up a couple of times throughout the film and I don't think that the film was insincere. I don't think that the film was hypocritically trying to actually go viral. I don't think that they were trying to uh, work the machine hypocritically, that you know, in opposition to the like the message of the film, mm-hmm. because the message of the film is definitely that there is something wrong with the world of pop culture that just seeks out, you know, uh, grown man running through the streets of Manhattan in their underwear <laughs> True. like that. That's a situation <laughs> of the film. And uh, it, it's definitely critiquing society for being, being enamored with all the poor bad stuff that really should not garner the attention that it gets. It doesn't deserve the attention it, get, it gets, but then at the same time, it seems like they were trying to be so clever with that ending that they thought that they had hit the nail with something brilliant and unexpected, so that that alone should have garnered some critical acclaim. And um, I'm sorry, but yeah, I mean, like the film, you can say what you wanted the film as a whole, that it deserves a lot of kudos to the performances and the general gist of the story, but it, the ending didn't do it for me. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I mean, the very, very end, as long as that's what we're talking about, I, I, can, I agree. Do you want to uh, move into our uh, conclusions and, and star ratings? Sure. Um, in general, I think the cat's out of the bag. I was only so, so with this film. Yeah. I, I kind of well know produced. where you're going. Yeah. It was well produced. Um, I'm glad I saw it once. I cannot exactly recommend it can because I, can I predict, of how I felt about it. Can I predict your star rating? Go ahead. Three out of five. Yeah. There you are. <laughs> I did it. Yes. I know you so well. Thank you, sir. Have you read my review? Have you even seen it? No, not yet. Uh, do you know, what my, checking do, it you, out tomorrow do you know morning. what my star rating is? I'm going to say four. Did you read it in the outline? No, okay. no, seriously. Okay. Honest to God. Really? 
Uh, you, you know me so well too. It's, it's like we've done lots of episodes <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. It is. I, Absolutely. I'm giving this, the film four out of five stars. Three is fine. I, I contemplated a three and a half, but ultimately I thought, you know, I really enjoyed this film. It, it's, um, it, I, I, it entertained me. What can I say? Whether that's good or bad, well, I don't know what that says about me, but it entertained <laughs> me and I enjoyed the film. I really enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed the filmmaking craft behind this film. Uh, despite some quibbles with the camera work and and the um, the choices made, the camera work itself was fantastic. Uh, the the choices that were made in terms of not when to, when to make the very 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 few cuts in this film were wonderfully chosen. Um, um, the one thing I will say is that if you haven't seen this film yet, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but if you haven't and you're super sensitive about sexuality, don't go see this film because there, it's not on the level of Gone Girl by any means, but you know, there is uh, a man naked from behind. Uh, I think that was the mo- the brunt of it as far as nudity, right? Um, yes. And yeah. then there was, um, there was a lot of, uh, of, uh, innuendo mentions, yeah. and, um, well, I suppose it depends on how you define like uh, nudity. You know, there's a guy on stage uh, in tight clothing, we shall say. Um, so, yeah, there's that sort of thing. But other than that, like uh, I would recommend that you see this film. I, I think it's something you should see. Um, it's something that I'm, I am glad that I saw. And I, I may see it again in several years. It's not something I will come back to, as I mentioned, uh, year after year. But it was something I was glad that I saw. So four out of five stars. All right. Thank you, TJ. I, I'm glad we definitely reviewed this film. I yeah. was looking forward to it for a long time. Yeah. IMDb users rate this at 8.8 out of 10. Uh, critics love this film on Rotten Tomatoes. They're at 94% approval rating and the audience, general audience is at 87% approval rating. So there you have it. That's Birdman. I don't know when we'll get to review the imitation game. I hope it's soon. I don't know when it'll come out in wide release. Um, mm. But that's pretty sad too, because I've been looking forward to that for such a long time. I have too. Um, so yeah, that's, that's frustrating. We did not have a film to review next week. And so I think we finally settled on going back into the archives, given that we had this big star Wars thing happen and we're, we're decided we've decided to change the name of the movie bite podcast, Joe, to the star Wars podcast. Um, we're, we're going to review next week, the empire strikes back way, way back in, uh, Oh, episode 30 of the movie bite podcast. We talked about Star Wars, the original Star Wars, and so I thought it was high time we revisited this topic and talked about The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, so, I think it's a great holiday flick. I have two people that I'm soliciting. Uh, well, I have there's going to be one guest, hopefully, if we have a guest next week. Um, I, I'm soliciting one person. If he's not able, I have another person in mind, and then if not, then it'll just be me and you, Joe. But uh, I think it'll be fun uh, to, re- to revisit The Empire Strikes Back. It's one of my favorite films. Um, please tell me you're going to watch it um, – uh, in the approved theatrical release, uh, despecialized edition. Yes, sir. Yes. yes. <laughs> if you can get me that copy, I, I will. <laughs> I will, uh, put it secretly on Dropbox. You, you, you do own the Blu-rays, right? Yeah, I do. Okay. Yeah. I own yes. the Blu-rays. I have no, me? I own the VHSs. Yes. I own it all. I have no problem doing that for you then. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just keep it between us, between friends. Oh yes. Just between us and the whole internet. Yes. So, so the Empire Strikes Back, that's going to be a lot of fun uh, to delve into Star Wars. And I hope to do Return of the Jedi before, um, before the new one comes out next year. If, if we're feeling masochistic, we may go back and do like uh, Attack of the Clones and or Revenge of the Sith. We will not review. <sighs> we will, we will not. Well, you don't want to have a good rag, you know, just rag on them. No. Uh, really. we, we will not be reviewing the, 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 the one that doesn't exist. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we don't you, like sir. pod racing. 
So with that, uh, Joe, tell us where the fine folks can find you on the interwebs. I am available on Twitter. I'm underscore Joe Darnell. And my website is intentionalsensibility.com. And I write a blog. I say things at random. And you might find me writing there less and less during the month of December just because. (laughs) Yes. Reasons. So if you want to find me, I am also available on the internet on this website uh, that many people know of as Twitter. And I am uh, TJ Draper Pro on Twitter. I also write on a site on the internet at moviebyte.com. That is M-O-V-I-E-B-Y-T-E dot com. And so that's where you can find a lot of the writing that I do. I try to write, write a little something pretty much every day if I on days that I don't release podcasts. Uh, so you will find me there. Um, if you would like to find the show notes for this episode, those will be at that same website, moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 116. That's where you will find the show notes. You can share that link with your friends and your family and your loved ones because why wouldn't you share the joy? Spread the ch- Christmas cheer. Uh, is what we want you to do. And if you have time, uh, we would love it if you would drop by the iTunes, type in Movie Bite, and give us a rating. Uh, give us five stars, please. That would be wonderful. So we thank you for listening, uh, and we are looking forward to talking with you about The Empire Strikes Back. See you next week, Joe. Ta-ta, Joe. 